0: Good morning. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. We'll be reading from Genesis 3 and John 1, 14 through 16. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now, please turn with me to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace.
1: Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You created all things perfect. You bound it all in the bow of time, perhaps so that we could encounter it slowly, one step at a time and to see your eternal glory displayed in perfect purpose. As we begin this Advent season, we confess that we sin as the days get so busy and we get distracted and forget you as we walk through the burdens and pleasures of our days. Please forgive us. We thank you for our families, our friends, our church and its leadership, and our communities of need for their love and for your calling us to serve you through them. As we enter this Advent season, we come together as a church community to remember your coming in the form of man, to walk with us, to live and pray and cry with us, to minister to us, and to show us the way. We pray that you will remind us always of the great plan you have for each of us, and that we would have the strength and courage to live it for you. As we encounter the difficulties of life, bless us with your truth, and let us be continually reminded that your spirit walks with us. Let us also be mindful through the experience of simple moments of love, beauty, and joy, all fleeting and insufficient, that we are not of this world, but we are your children, redeemed by faith in Christ alone. And we are here to impact this world for you for a short time until we are home with you. We love you, and we need you, Lord. To your glory be all things. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.
2: Morning. morning? There we are. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and it is my, uh, my great joy and privilege to open uh, God's word with you this morning. But before we do that, uh, would you just, real quick, would you pray with me? Um, Father, as we come before you, as we reflect on Emmanuel, God, with us, Father, we ask that that would be a reality this morning. We ask that you would meet with your people, that you would fill this place Father, we ask that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, and ultimately, would you transform us into the image of your Son? Father, would you uh, speak through me with these uh, feeble words and meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, and would you be glorified in our time together? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In January of 2004, Mark Zuckerberg unveiled a website that uh, took Harvard's campus by storm. It was called Facemash. And the premise of the website was very simple. It would take two random student ID photos of women who were attending Harvard, and it would smash them together. And the people visiting the website had the option of voting which one they thought was more attractive. Now, there's a whole host of problems with that website, such as, but not limited to, the fact it violated campus's policy because it hacked the security system to get those photos. And so, unsurprisingly, that website got shut down in a couple of days. But this exposure gave Zuckerberg the notoriety uh, to address a problem that he noticed on campus. And here's how he describes the problem in a later interview. He said, you could find music on the internet, You could find news, you could find information, but you couldn't find to connect with the people that you cared about, which as people is actually the most important thing. And so that seemed like a pretty big hole that needed to be filled. And to fill that hole, Facebook was created, which now helps just under three billion people connect and share with the people in your life. Now I am Unconvinced of the effectiveness of his solution. But I do think he has a point. There is an innate need for us to connect and to be with others. And a survey of Scripture would show us that we share that trait with God. Uh, this Advent season, we are looking at God being with us, which is something that we sing about frequently this time of year. But before Pastor Austin leads us through different ways in which God has been with his people, I want us to ask a very important question. Why? Why does God want to be with us? Which is what we're going to look at this morning from Genesis chapter 3. From our our text, we'll see God's desire, our decision, our response to that desire, and how that creates a great dilemma Now, I know I did just say that we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, but we actually need to look elsewhere first because of the logic behind great-grandma's ham. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the story of the little girl who, at Thanksgiving, noticed that her mom cut both ends of the ham off before putting it in the oven. And that seemed rather strange to her, and so she said, Mama, why'd you do that? Why did you cut the two ends of the ham off before putting it in the oven? And she said, well, sweetheart, I really don't know why I did that. That's just what my mom always did. But, but I, th- I, bet it, I bet so that the, the, the meat becomes more tender. And that's a good answer. But the little girl wanted to be sure. And so she goes to her grandma and says, Grandma, why did you cut the ends off of the ham? Mommy didn't know. She said, well, to be honest, I actually don't know either. I, uh, I just do it because that's what my mom, your great-grandma, did. But I I think it's so that the the meat cooks evenly. Another good answer. But the little girl persists, and she goes to her great-grandma, who happened to be there for Thanksgiving, and says, Great-grandma, can you please tell me why you cut both ends of the ham off at Thanksgiving? And the elderly woman smiles a little sheepishly as she explains, Well, dearie, I, I only had one baking pan, and it was too small for the ham. And so the only way to get into the oven was to cut off both ends. Yes, it is a very, to me, it's a very funny story. But it also explains to us where we need to look to find the answer to our question. We can have hunches and ideas as to why God wants to be with us. But if we really want to understand God's desire, we need to go back to the beginning and look at why he made us in the first place. And to that end, we turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm reading verses 26 And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now these verses do tell us something about us. But more importantly, for our purposes this morning, they tell us something about the God who made us. Specifically, that God is and us, uh, Not that there are three gods, or one God that has multiple faces that he switches between throughout history, but a triune God, one in essence, and three in persons. And, and rather than try and explode our brains grasping this mystery, I, I just want us to understand the implications that has for our existence. See, if God is unipersonal, that is, he's only one person— then the reason that he would have made humanity is to satisfy some relational need. Uh, It's like the individual who lives alone and and buys a dog for companionship, only on a much grander scale he would have created us to get something from us to satisfy his need for love and relationship. But God is tripersonal, which means he's already got all of that. A theologian by the name of Cornelius Plantiga, in, in speaking about the Trinity's inner relationship, writes that the persons within God, they exalt each other, they commune with each other, and they defer to one another. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. And I know that's a bit of a lofty quote, but, but the point for our discussion is simply this God did not need humanity to fill some relational need. He, he was is and always will be completely satisfied in himself. So if he didn't create us to get joy and love, then we can conclude he created us so that he could give joy and love. That he must have created us to enter into and share in the life and love he already experiences within himself. Just let that sink in for a second. The God of the universe created you to join in the love-join relationship that he has been experiencing and enjoying for all eternity. That's why he created us in his image. That's why he invites us to rule with him by caring for and cultivating the world. And that's why he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, so that we might share in him. It's, it's as if the persons of the Trinity are in a, a divine dance full of beauty and flourishing, love and relationship, and they are holding out their hand, inviting us to join the dance. This is why God desires to be with us, because it's what we were made for. And perhaps you've sensed that before. Perhaps at different points in your life, you have felt this sense of purposelessness, uh, not because things weren't going well for you. you. You might have been succeeding in your job. Your kids might have been doing great in school. Everything's going good. And yet there's just something that, that's amiss in your life as you attempt to, to, to be satisfied and fulfilled. All of those attempts just keep coming back empty. And that's because our purpose is wrapped up in being with God, it's as C.S. Lewis put it, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That God invites Adam and Eve, and by extension us, to enter the dance, to share in his great love, and thus fulfill our creation purpose. And yet when we turn over to Genesis chapter 3, we read in verse 8 that one day, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why would they do that? Why would they hide themselves from someone who wants to share his life and love with them? Because a decision was made that changed everything We're told that while Adam and Eve were hiding, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Well, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The reason that Adam and Eve give for why they hid was because they were afraid of God realizing they were naked. That should be surprising because their physical state has not changed. The last verse of Genesis 2 tells us that they were both naked and not ashamed. And so so what changed? What happened here? God already knew. He tells them in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now we got to talk about this tree. What's up with the fruit, right? Does, Does this kind of feel a little bit like the opening of Les Mis? Like Jean Valjean steals a loaf of bread... And he gets 20 years in prison, right? Like, they ate a piece of fruit. What's the big deal? Well, it's not so much the fruit as what the fruit represents. See, if we had taken the time to read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we would have heard God repeatedly declaring that this is good. He is defining good and evil. But then once he places Adam and Eve in the garden, once he invites them to the dance— he changes things a little bit. He still gives command. A command. Genesis 2:16 through 17, 17 tells us that God told them that they could eat of any tree in the garden that they wanted, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when they eat of it they will die. God is still doing the same thing he did in Genesis 1 and 2. He is defining what is good, what will lead to their flourishing and what will not. But he has given them a choice. They can trust God's goodness and his love and desire for them and not eat of the fruit, or they can define good and evil for themselves. They can rebel against him and eat from the tree. And this is the exact choice that the serpent presents them with. The serpent says to them, uh, starting in verse 4, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He effectively says to them You know, God's holding out on you he, He's cut you out of the best parts of the deal You know, if he really wanted to see you flourish Why did he place all these restrictions on you? What else is he holding back from you? See, you really can't trust him You should just, you should just take things into your own hands And they agree So they take the fruit. They rebel against God and his desire to be with them. They sin. And we need to realize that this belief is actually at the heart of every sin that we commit as well. Uh, We normally think of sin as uh, rebellious acts against God and his commands, and that is true. But that doesn't answer the question of why we do it. It's because every, behind every sinful act is the belief that I am wiser, that I know better, or that I care about myself and my circumstances more than God. Sin is fundamentally mistrusting God and his goodness toward us. And because of that mistrust, it creates a, a recoil against God. Notice how Adam and Eve assume That as God approaches, he desires something other than their best interest. And so they hide. They deflect blame on others. All because they believe that God's desire to be with them is less than good. And and this conclusion has poisoned the bloodstream of all humanity. It's, it's, It's a fatal sickness that presents itself in all of our lives in one of two ways. One way the sickness presents itself is in our exercise of freedom. Uh, we treat ourselves as autonomous beings and simply ignore God and his desires for us. We say to him, in effect, man, I'm not a part of your system. I- I'm going to do what I want because that's where the fun and flourishing is. And all of your rules, all of your restrictions, they rob me of my freedom. And at the root of this anti-law life is the belief that God cannot be trusted, and so if we want to enjoy life, we must rebel against him. But the sickness can also present itself in an entirely different way in our attempts to appease God, when we're trying to obey his commands and live in line with what he said. Now, I know that sounds completely different, but it actually has the same root illness. See, if I obey God because I want him to bless my marriage or because I want to hit a home run of a sermon this morning, I'm actually mistrusting God. I'm saying, God, I don't actually think you want me to flourish, so I'm going to do these things so that I have leverage with you so that I can twist your arm, I can pry open your hand and make you bless me when the time is right. Because at the end of the day, God And his goodness cannot be trusted. And ever since Adam and Eve, we have all been affected with this disease. But I mean, that's no big deal for God, right? I mean, he's God. Surely he could win us back. He could get us back together. But look at what happens starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. from his presence, and completely separating God's space from our space. And this should be confusing to us. If God desires to be with us so much that he created us in the first place, why is he driving them away? And is this just the case of a lover scorned? Is this like the the pottery project that didn't work out, and so you just kind of toss it to the side? What is going on here? Well, the problem is actually quite complex. Uh, Yes, the problem is that sin has separated us from God, but we can't just get back together. You can't just smash our space and his space back together because the problem is far graver because of his holiness. Holiness is, uh, in my personal opinion, the hardest Christianese word to talk about. And I think that's partly because we don't have anything other than God to help us understand what it is. And and so it it gets reduced to to moral perfection, since that's what God is and we are not. But that really doesn't quite capture the the Bible's concept of holiness. So let's try to round out our understanding with a very imperfect metaphor. In our solar system, the sun is unique, right? it's, It's powerful, and life could not exist on this planet Without it, for the sake of the metaphor, the sun is holy. But let's take that a step further. Suppose in the next 10 years that Elon Musk figures out how to get us to the sun, and he's offering you a, a trip on the maiden voyage. Please don't go. <laughs> because the closer you get to the sun's holiness, the greater the odds that it is going to annihilate you. Not because the sun and its holiness are bad. It's actually immensely good. But because you're not made of the right stuff to be in its presence. And that's what God's holiness is like for us. God is holy. He is utterly unique, as demonstrated in, in creating life out of nothing and sustaining all things. And if, if we were to come into his presence as we are, his holiness destroy us not because it's bad it's in fact it's immensely good our impure state our sin makes us incompatible with god And this is the dilemma god desires to be with his people to reconcile them to himself but if he draws near to them in their current impure state he'll destroy them so what can be done Well, God tells Adam and Eve exactly what He's going to do in the judgment on the serpent in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we need to define bruise here, because some people define bruise as a cool thing to have, and most of us define bruise as a minor injury. But when the Bible talks about bruise, it is a serious and repeated injury that is virtually a death blow. And through this bloody exchange between this coming offspring and the serpent, God would somehow dwell with his people again. And this is why the opening of John's gospel is so profound, as the Molinas read a few minutes ago. The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. That that Jesus is the intersecting point between God's space and our space. That that in Jesus, God is once again with us. What about that holiness problem? How has God solved that dilemma? Well, Jesus addresses that uh, actually, it, it comes up later in John chapter 1. In verse 29, Jesus is walking along and John the Baptist looks up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, the God had made provisions in the Old Testament for, for select people to be in his presence. Uh, if they sacrificed an animal, that animal absorbed the individual's impurity and it allowed them to go into God's presence temporarily. But this was severely limited, really just down to the high priest once a year. But then with Jesus, he not only cleanses the high priest, but he has the ability to cleanse the whole world. See, when we look at Jesus, we see the lengths that God went to be with us, that he would give his son So that we might once again join the divine dance to be in relationship with him On the cross Jesus didn't just crush the serpent He also crushed the lie that we have all bought into How can we not be convinced of his goodness toward us When beholding Emmanuel God with us And so Where do we go from here? What do we do in response to God's desire to be with us? Well, some need to join the dance. Some have been on the sidelines trying to be the God of of their life because you know best, and because you aren't convinced of God's goodness towards you. And if that's you this morning, please See the great love which which he has lavished upon us in Jesus. Give yourself to him. Make him your Lord, because when you center your life on him, you will find the flourishing and love that you were made for. Some of us need to stay in step with the dance. So here's what's happened. Uh, It is very easy to hear how much God loves us and how much he wants to be with us and to just jump right in. But then we realize that, that some of the dance moves that he's calling for aren't really to our liking. Uh, he's calling us to surrender some things that we would rather not give up, to start doing some things that we would rather not do. And we think to ourself, I can, I'm a good dancer. I can improvise a little bit here. And what we are actually saying is, I don't believe that God is good in this part of my life. I actually know better than he does here. So, can I challenge you? Examine your life. Ask yourself, where do I not believe that God is good toward me? And take the gospel that God is with us and for us and massage that into your heart until you can trust his goodness toward you, even in this area. Brothers and sisters, God desires to be with us so that we might share in his life and love. And if you have any doubt of that, look to Jesus, God with us. So don't be shy. Don't be suspicious. Take his nail-pierced hand and enjoy the dance. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that your great love for us uh, led you to, to create us so that we might enjoy you for eternity Father we we, we thank you for, for your, your completeness your greatness and we also confess Father that we are highly suspicious of you many times a day do we think to ourselves that we know better that we could do it better than you would you forgive us of our mistrust of you, which leads to a whole host of sin? And Father, would you, would you give us eyes to see daily, moment by moment, the great love that you have poured out on us in your Son? Would you help us to understand, to see how good it is that you are with us? Father, would you impress that upon our hearts even now as we sing your praises? And in Jesus' name we pray.